beautiful and palatial UltimateSportsTalk.com radio studios. Good evening, everyone. I'm Dave Mitchell, and welcome to the Ultimate Sports Talk Show. And oh, what a show we have got for you tonight. There is so much going on. The Major League Baseball draft is happening, and boy, the Indians have four of the top 81 picks in this year's draft. If you're a Cleveland Indians fan, it's going to be a fun night for you this evening. And the Major League Club has the night off. Well, we're going to be talking about a lot of subjects here on tonight's show, as we normally do on our Thursday night get-together. But you can join us also by just simply by picking up the social media and sending us either an email or a tweet. You can email me at tonight's show at dmitch at ultimatesportstalk.com, or you can send me a tweet. My Twitter address is at OHBBCoHost. That's at OHBBCoHost. Well, there's a lot going on, like I said, in the world of sports this week. A baseball icon is gone. Don Zimmer passed away. We're going to look at that later on in the show. The Stanley Cup Finals are underway, and we're going to talk tonight with our guest, John Hertzmark, who is our hockey expert and writer for UltimateSportsTalk.com about the series between the New York Rangers and the L.A. Kings. The L.A. Kings taking a one nothing lead in that series with their overtime victory last night over the Rangers in L.A. The NBA Finals will begin tonight. That has the Miami Heat in San Antonio taking on the Spurs. One NBA team has a new old coach, while the Cleveland Cavaliers still have the first pick in the June 26th NBA draft, and they still need a head coach. Colin Kaepernick has a new contract, and we talk about 10-cent beer night from 40 years ago. All that plus more on tonight's Ultimate Sports Talk Show. But first, well, one hour before the first-year player draft begins, actually right now, we still didn't know who the Houston Astros were going to take as their number one overall pick. It is still a complete mystery. But that's par for the course because the last two years when Houston had the top selection, nobody knew who they were going to take as their number one pick. The 2014 Major League Baseball draft begins in just a few minutes. And Ryan Fagan from Sports Illustrated looks at the top five players and this year's draft crop. Carlos Rodon, a left-hander from NC State, has been the guy they've talked about really for the last couple of years as a potential number one pick. He still could go number one to the Astros. Uh, Brady Aiken is a, a prep lefty from Texas who doesn't quite throw 100, but he throws mid-90s. He, he's a tall guy. They like the way his motion is. He seems like he has an easy, easy pitching motion. He could be number one. Um, there's a kid, Alex Jackson, a prep catcher, um, People talk about the way his hit tool is what they call it. He's right. the best bat, uh, high school bat in the draft. Uh, Nick Gordon, who is the son of Tom Gordon, longtime major league pitcher, brother of D. Gordon, who's the Dodgers second baseman, he could go top five. Tyler Kolick, a prep right-hander from Texas, he's hit 100 miles an hour on the radar already as a high school kid. He could go in the top five. So it's going to be interesting to see who goes where and then how that causes the dominoes to fall. Well, the top five picks, as I said, the Houston Astros have the number one pick. The number two is the Miami Marlins. Number three comes the Chicago White Sox. The Cubs are number four. And the fifth team tonight, it will be the Minnesota Twins. So that's your top five picks 
for this year's Major League Baseball draft. Now, remember, the Major League Baseball draft is a lot different from what the NBA and the NFL drafts are. First of all, you cannot trade the draft picks. Secondly, if a first-year player, which is what this is, the first-year draft, if they are selected, they do not have to go pro, especially if it's a high school player. They can opt to go to college. They don't get the contract that they want from a major league ball club. They can opt to go to college. And if they do select a college player, the college player doesn't have to go pro. So there is sort of a, a catch-22 there for the professional ball clubs. Nonetheless, that's going on. And as soon as that number one pick is selected, we will let you know who it is. Well, a strange thing happened in Cuyahoga County today, and it raised the question, do you believe the tax money that you pay should go towards a winning franchise rather than a losing one? Well, most people would tell you, yeah, they'd like that to happen, but realistically, it can't. Owners cannot predict injuries. They cannot predict what free agents will do, whether if they come or they go. And the fact that players want the best situation for themselves, they can't control that. But Cuyahoga County Executive Ed Fitzgerald said that he is trying to level the playing field in Cleveland on the condition of providing public support for professional sports. And he thinks it's fair game. Here's what he's saying. Fitzgerald rolled out a proposal today to award 20% of the syntax, an estimated $2.7 million a year for upkeep at Cleveland's Pro Sports Stadiums based on at least in part on how well the teams who use them play. He calls this idea a win tax rather than a syntax. Now the voters already approved a 20-year extension of the syntax, which is a countywide tax on alcohol and cigarettes, and that's to pay for the upkeep to First Energy Stadium, where the Browns play, Progressive Field, where the Indians play, and Quicken Loans Arena, where the Cavaliers play. Now, they passed that just about 30 days ago. In other words, the syntax is only on people who buy alcohol or cigarettes, and only those who purchase those items are taxed, not anyone else. That's the way those stadiums were built, and that's the way that the voters decided this past May that they want to continue to keep the upkeep on them. So I said, this is for the upkeep only. The stadiums are leased by the teams that play in them. So what Fitzgerald is saying is tantamount to you renting a house, and if the plumbing needs fixed under Fitzgerald's plan, if it applied to the house that you're renting, if your place is nice but your landlord has a losing record on the softball field, your plumbing could go unfixed. Fitzgerald argues that if fans are going to support the Browns, Cavs, and Indians games with their tax money, which they don't, it's only those people that buy alcohol and cigarettes. The leaguered Cleveland sports fans deserve a return on their investment. Wouldn't every sports fan want that? Wouldn't they want to return their investment? But there's no guarantee of that. Fitzgerald also said there's a correlation between winning sports teams and economic development. Well, he's right there. I'll give him that. 
and he used as an example LeBron James leaving the Cavaliers in 2010 and how tax collections went down after LeBron left Cleveland. Well, tax collections went down, so did a lot of other things. It affected small businesses around the arena and in downtown Cleveland. Not as many people were showing up, of course, but what could the Cavaliers owner Dan Gilbert do about it? LeBron didn't give Gilbert a chance to compete to even sign him. He just up and went to Miami. So in this scenario, the teams could go unfixed, the stadiums could go unfixed, just simply because a player left. Now, is that the spirit of the law that the people voted to approve? I don't think so. Nate Kelly, Fitzgerald's special assistant for economic development in Cuyahoga County, said Fitzgerald's proposal is no different than requiring companies that accept tax incentives to deliver a certain number of jobs as the county currently does. Well, let's look at that. There are a certain number of jobs that every roster has. The Cavs have 15. That's the number of players on a roster in the regular season. The Browns have 53. The Indians have their 40-man roster. Plus, you have front office jobs that each teams have. Then they have the secretarial pools, everything else. These teams are already adding to the tax base of the county. Let's face it, there really isn't any reason to go downtown to any major city other than to see an athletic event at night. Why? I'm going to raise this question, and I'm sorry to the people in Detroit, but why in the world would anybody go into downtown Detroit for any other reason at night other than to see a Tiger game or a Lions game on Sunday? What's in Brooklyn other than the Nets? There's nothing in downtown Denver other than the Nuggets at night. That's just a little nugget around the league. Fitzgerald says that this is only a starting point. To me, it's a finishing point. You see, you've got to remember that Ed Fitzgerald is also running for governor of the state of Ohio. And he is trying to make a splash. Nobody knows who's running against Kasich as governor of Ohio. I didn't even know that Ed Fitzgerald was running for governor until the other day, and I keep on top of politics. I hate bringing up politics in this environment, but in this case, you almost have to because sometimes the two mesh. The people of Cuyahoga County have spoken. They've passed the syntax. The syntax was designed and voted upon to keep the stadiums up to date. If First Energy Stadium... Progressive Field, and Quicken Loans Arena need fixing. It is the county's responsibility to fix the problem inside that stadium, not to make it some contest. After all, if we had this contest in effect in the early 1990s, the Browns would have never left Cleveland, and the Indians would be playing in Miami now. Well, let's switch from what's going on in Cuyahoga County to what's going to happen in New York this weekend, where California Chrome became the 3-5 to five early favorite yesterday to win the Belmont Stakes and become horse racing's 12th Triple Crown champion. Everybody knows about the NHL going on this week. Everybody knows about the NBA going on this week. But California Chrome 
has already won the Kentucky Derby. He's already won the Preakness. And he's going to break from the number two post under Victor Espinosa on Saturday at Belmont Park. Eleven Belmont winners have come out of that post, the last being Tasmanian Cat in 1994. Now, for a look at what's going on in the Belmont, Alexis Christoffers reports for CBS Sports. California Chrome stretched his legs in an early morning workout at Belmont Park. On Saturday, the three-year-old Colt will race for the Triple Crown. He would be the first since affirmed in 1978. Trainer Art Sherman says his horse is ready. He looks great right now. He's, he looks about as good as any race that he's, he's been into, including the Derby and the Preakness. California Chrome drew the number two gate position, which went over well with jockey Victor Espinoza. I like number number two. Um, I think uh, uh, hopefully it's my lucky number. Co-owner Steve Coburn paid a bargain $10,000 to breed California Chrome, but always knew he had a winner. Something I saw on the horse when he's a day old. That's just, just something I felt within me. I knew he was going to do big things. Belmont expects a huge crowd of 100,000 here Saturday to see if this Cinderella story comes true. He's America's horse because we've got the entire country, if not the entire world, behind us. California Chrome is the runaway favorite, but he'll have his work cut out. The mile-and-a-half course is the longest of the Triple Crown races, often dubbed the Test of the champion. California Chrome will be listed number two in the betting program, the same number as 1973 Triple Crown winner Secretariat, who won the Belmont by a record 31 lengths while setting a track record for the one-and-a-half-mile race that still stands. Eleven horses were entered to take on California Chrome in his bid to win the Triple Crown for the first time since Affirmed swept the Derby Preakness in Belmont in 1978. Wicked Strong was the 6-1 to one odds choice for second, and he drew post number nine. Uh, the Colt finished fourth after an unlucky trip in the Derby. He set out the Preakness and comes into the Belmont off of a five-week rest. Well, as I said, we'd keep you up to date as to what's going on in the Major League Baseball draft, and the Houston Astros have selected as their number one pick Brady Aiken. Aiken is a left-handed pitcher from Cathedral High School in California, and we've got a scouting report on Brady Aiken. In 2013, scouts visited Cathedral Catholic frequently to watch lefty Steven Gonsalves. They're back in 2014 to see Aiken, who emerged as the top prep arm in the class. He has an intriguing combination of size, stuff, and pitchability that has him looking like a first-round candidate. The big lefty, who threw extremely well for Team USA this past summer, has shown increased velocity this spring, maintaining it deep into starts. He has an excellent breaking ball to go along with it, as well as a good feel for his changeup and can throw all three offerings for strikes. Gonsalves was the highest-drafted Cathedral Catholic player ever, but Aiken should eclipse him by plenty. Well, we'll see what happens. As I said, the Houston Astros took him. He's a big, strong, left-handed pitcher. Now, he comes from Cathedral Catholic. Now, other high school left-handed pitchers taken first overall, of course, David Clyde, from the Texas Rangers back in 1973, and Brian Taylor back in 1979 with the New York Mets. Neither one of them panned out very well, but keep in mind that most of them were brought up extremely early. 
Now, the team on the clock right now are the Miami Marlins. And most people would say that maybe the best bat in this draft belongs to Alex Jackson, who is a high school catcher. Now, most of the time, catchers are not a very high draft pick. But Alex Jackson is expected to go high. And like I said, we've got a scouting report on him also. Whatever position Jackson ends up playing, his bat is sure to carry him. The Rancho Bernardo product has tremendous raw power from the right side of the plate and has shown the ability to compete well against the best the country has to offer. He's caught and played the outfield during his prep career. Look for any team that takes him early on in the draft to give him every opportunity to stick behind the plate. He's not without tools there, with good hands and a strong arm to go along with natural leadership skills. High school backstops don't often go near the top of the first round, but Jackson has the chance to buck that trend. See, that's the big thing. Jackson is going to have to buck the trend, as you heard there on our scouting report, just to be drafted in the top five. It's hard to tell what is going to happen with this kid. He could make a dramatic fall, or he could continue to climb up the ladder as far as what happens here on the Major League Baseball draft. That is what is going on so far, as I said. Brady Aiken, the number one pick in the first round, and now the number two pick is being selected by the Miami Marlins, and let's see who that will be as we look at it here on the Major League Baseball Network. Miami has selected Tyler Kolek, a right-handed pitcher from Shepard High School in Texas. Tyler Kolek is the number two pick in the Major League Baseball draft for tonight. Now, as I said earlier, the next remaining five picks, the Chicago White Sox are on the clock right now with the number three pick. Then come the Chicago Cubs at number four. At number five are the Minnesota Twins. Seattle will have the number six pick, and the number seven pick belongs to the Philadelphia Phillies, and who knows what they will be doing. But nonetheless, that is what is happening so far here on the Major League Baseball draft. And as I said, Brady Aiken, number one, and Tyler Kolek is number two in that. Well, let's move over to the NHL and talk about what happened last night in the Stanley Cup playoffs. It's an overstatement to say that the New York Rangers had to win game one. It isn't an overstatement to say that they should have and that their hopes of winning the 2014 Stanley Cup have now diminished thanks to their inability to execute. After all, the Los Angeles Kings had to feel like they were on a strange ice surface before last night's ball game. Because on the previous three series, the Kings were the visiting team in games one and two and in game seven. But in all three series, the Kings won game seven on the road. The Rangers are used to being on the road. So maybe this was an advantage for the Rangers, more so than the Kings. But after the first two first two periods and what appeared to be the Rangers outskating, outplaying, and being more physical to the puck than the Los Angeles Kings were, 
Well, when you looked at all that, it was still 2-2 two to two entering the third period of play. And with the exception of goaltender Hendrik Lundqvist, who virtually forced overtime by himself for the Rangers, the Rangers really have to look at last night's game as a significant missed opportunity. Fatigue was a major factor working in New York's favor in the way that it won't likely work in the future. In his post-game press conference carried live on the NHL Network, Kings coach Daryl Sutter acknowledged the Rangers' advantage in that department when asked about L.A.'s poor play in the early going. To me, it just looked like the Kings had no idea that the Rangers were going to come out and be as physical as they were. Well, they were wrong. The Rangers came out and knocked the Kings off the puck in the first two quarters. The Rangers came out flying. They took a 2 nothing lead and generated 20 shot attempts to L.A.'s 9 over the first three quarters of the opening period. With Lundquist in net and the Kings on their heels, New York was well on its way to taking a one nothing lead in the series, but it wasn't to be. A Kyle Clifford chip shot from in tight to the net got the Kings on the board before the end of the opening frame, and a gorgeous play by all-world defenseman Drew Doty knotted the score at two goals each early in the second period. While L.A. was able to fight its way back into the contest, things were pretty even through 40 minutes. Then came the third period and a total collapse of the Rangers. New York coach Elaine Vigneault said that after the game, he liked the way the Rangers played in the first two periods. He thought it was hard fought by both teams, but he wasn't quite sure what happened in the third, but that the Kings definitely took it to the Rangers in the third period. CBC Scott Oak reported that associate head coach Scott Arnell was less diplomatic when he talked to him before the overtime, calling the period one of the worst he'd seen by the Rangers in the postseason. The Rangers, however, were still in the game at that point because Lundquist stopped everything he faced in the third period, but it wasn't enough. In the overtime period, defenseman Dan Girardi attempted to pass the puck out of the defenseman's zone and whiffed on his first attempt, but not before his teammates had advanced in anticipation of the pass. On his second try, Girardi put the puck on the tape of Mike Richards, who fed Justin Williams the puck in the slot. Williams, who had plenty of time and space, ended the game. After the game, there was a lot being said. The end result was squandered opportunity. Game one represented... New York's best chance to take advantage of a fatigued Kings team. Now that club will have two full days rest before the teams meet again on Saturday. It won't likely be as easy to secure an early lead once Los Angeles is rested. The Rangers' inability to put the pucks on the net hurt them too. The Kings outshot the Rangers 43-27 but had their shots missed or blocked only 21 times to New York's 36. New York showed that it could compete with the Kings possession-wise in the contest, but that big possession advantage doesn't matter if you can't get the shots through to the net, something it struggled with in the opening game of this series. The one thing New York doesn't have to change is in the net, where Lundquist gave them every chance to win. And if he plays like this throughout, it will be everything that the Rangers could ask for. Now, the Rangers need to find a way to do more in front of him or it will be all for naught. As I said, the next game will be on Saturday. Right now, the Kings lead it one to none 
over the New York Rangers. The Chicago White Sox, back to the Major League Draft, have selected at number three, Carlos Rondon, a left-handed pitcher from North Carolina State. He is the third pick in the first round of this year's Major League Baseball draft. So Brady Aiken went number one to the Houston Astros. Number two was Tyler Kolek to the Miami Marlins. And number three, Carlos Rondon. So two of the top three picks in this year's Major League Baseball draft are left-handed pitchers. If you're left-handed, young men, throw the baseball because you can make millions and millions of dollars doing that in the game today. Well, as we already talked about, the NHL began last night and the NBA begins tonight. It's the San Antonio Spurs taking on the Miami Heat in the NBA Championship Series. And the Miami Heat might be staring at a mile-long list of historical implications as they prepare for the 2014 Finals against the San Antonio Spurs tonight. But LeBron James sounds like he would prefer to just tone it all out for the time being and just concentrate on basketball. The Heat are the first team since the Boston Celtics in the 1980s to advance to the finals in four straight years. And they can become just the second team to three-peat during the post-Michael Jordan era, joining the 2000-2002 Los Angeles Lakers. In the meantime, James can claim the third title of his career, taking him halfway to Jordan's career total of six ranks. James can also become only the third player to ever win three consecutive finals MVP awards, joining Jordan and, of course, Shaq. Want to dig in even deeper into this series? Well, a 2014 championship would push James' overall finals record to 3-2 and two overall, putting him above the 500 mark for the first time in his career. He would also be able to claim a 2-1 to advantage over Tim Duncan in their personal finals matchup. Still, this is going to be a tough step for the Heat to take. The Spurs have a chip on their shoulder from last year and want to prove that they should be the defending champions. Instead, Miami is. ESPN's Antonio Davis examines the matchup between the Spurs and the Heat. Well, you know, I think if, if you have Miami's big three, you're going to have to make sure that their starters are the best here. I'm going to give them the edge. Uh, they've proven that any time they can carry a game, so I'm going to go with Miami with that one. Uh, Vince, you're going with the Spurs. You know, when you bring Boris Diaw in, he creates a lot of different problems for everybody. Uh, Ginobili is another guy, and, you know, depending on how Tony Parker feels, he can handle the ball, make plays, knock down threes. I'm going with the bench with the Spurs. Defense, I'm going to go with the Spurs again. I just feel like when you got those two bigs back there protecting the paint, it's going to be very difficult for Miami to continue to attack and make plays by kicking the ball out to the three-point line. This is going to be a deciding factor to me. In, in games proceeding, game after game, who's going to make the big shot? Last year, it was Miami with Ray Allen with that big hit. This year, I think it's going to be San Antonio. They're going to be poised enough to get down in clutch time, make the necessary play, make the big shot. Losing in the finals would carry ramifications. 
namely that James would drop to 2-3 and three in career finals overall and that he would have two finals losses during his prime years at age 26 and at age 29. Jordan, of course, went a perfect 6-0 and oh in the finals and never needed a Game 7 to do it. Nevertheless, James says he feels no added pressure or burdens as tonight's Game 1 against the Spurs approaches. It will tip off in about an hour. And who do I think will win the series? Well, I think Manu Ginobili is going to be one of the players that you're going to want to watch. Him and Chris Bosh. I think you're going to get normal games out of LeBron and Dwayne Wade, out of Parker, and out of Tim Duncan. But the wild cards for each team will be Ginobili for San Antonio and Chris Bosh for Miami. When Bosh plays well, along with the other two of the big three, Miami is practically unbeatable. Same thing with Ginobili. When he plays well, along with Duncan and Parker, San Antonio is practically unbeatable. Now keep in mind, also this year, the format is different. For the last 25 years, it's been a 2-3-2 format in the championship series. This year, they've changed it, and it will go forward this way. 2 2 one, one, one. That means game six will be in Miami and game seven will be in San Antonio because the Spurs have the home court advantage this year. They could have used it last year, but Miami got it this year. Miami succumbed and San Antonio took the home court advantage. Who do I think will win? I'm going to go with San Antonio in six games. Yes, I know that means that they'll win it on Miami's home court, and I think that's where they want to win it. I think they'll split in San Antonio. They'll split in Miami. San Antonio will take Game 5 in Texas, and then they'll come back to Miami, and they'll win Game 6. I've got San Antonio winning this series in six games over the Miami Heat. And then we can figure out all summer long just what LeBron James will do. Will he opt out of his contract with Miami and go elsewhere? Will he stay? And will he even contemplate coming back to Northeast Ohio? Elsewhere in the NBA, well, the Minnesota Timberwolves have finally found their head coach. It will be president and part owner Flip Saunders. He's decided to coach his team himself. That was confirmed by ESPN.com's Mark Stein today. A news conference is scheduled for tomorrow to announce that Saunders will take the job. Saunders previously coached the Timberwolves from 1995 through 2005. He won 411 games in ten and a half years in Minnesota and guided the T-Wolves to the only eight playoff appearances that they've had in franchise history, including the Western Conference Finals in 2004. He has a career record of 636 and 526 losses in 16 seasons as an NBA head coach, a career that also includes stops in Detroit and Washington. That leaves four teams without head coaches, the Knicks, the Jazz, the Lakers, and the Cleveland Cavaliers. And what are the Cavaliers doing? Well, so far they are interviewing just about everybody and their brother for the head coaching position. And I like the idea of that happening. I think it's a great idea. Interview everybody. Get a broad spectrum. 
bring these people in and decide what you want in your next head coach because this one has to be a home run. They've talked to people like Alvin Gentry, Tyrone Liu, Vinny Del Negro, Lionel Hollins. I've gone on record as saying I want Mark Price to have the job. They have not interviewed Mark Jackson, although many are clamoring for him to get the job. Patrick Ewing is even another one that I would be interested in talking to. Luke Walton, I'd be interested in talking to him as far as being the head coach. But I think the most important thing is to hit a home run with this coaching spot. And don't forget, they've got the number one pick in the draft, and that's three weeks from tonight, June 26th. Three weeks from tonight, the number one pick goes to the Cleveland Cavaliers. And, of course, we'll be here that night to tell you who it is going to be. Did anybody see the game last night, the long game that ended just after 2 o'clock this morning in Cleveland? No, believe it or not, I did not stay up and watch the game last night. I really didn't. I saw this on replays. But in the fifth inning, David Ortiz came to the plate. Now, I was in David Ortiz's corner for a while in the David Price incident a couple of weeks ago. Remember that? Where Price hit Ortiz and Ortiz got upset about it because of an incident that happened towards the end of last year? Well, I was in Ortiz's back pocket, so to speak, for that incident. I've changed my mind. Last night, Ortiz hit a home run off of Corey Kluber in the fifth inning to cut a 2 nothing Indians lead to 2-1. to one. And Ortiz stood at home plate for a solid five seconds, watching the home run go deep into the right field stands at Progressive Field. Now, Ortiz can't have it both ways, folks. I'm sorry. Ortiz can't sit there and complain about being brushed back or hit when he pulls antics like this. There was absolutely no reason for him to do that last night. He was the most egotistical player on the field. He always is. I can live with that. But when he pulls stunts like that, I felt like I was watching the movie Bull Durham last night, and Kevin Costner was behind the plate telling the guy, run, dummy. And if I was Jan Gomes behind the plate last night, I would have stood there and told David Ortiz, run, dummy, and see if he could have understood that he should run out a home run. Not in David Ortiz's corner anymore. And you know what last night was also? Ten Cent Beer Night, the anniversary. Yes, for those of you who don't know what Ten Cent Beer Night was, oh boy, that was quite the thing. On June 4th, 1974, Ten Cent Beer Night was a promotion by the Cleveland Indians in the old municipal stadium during a game against the Texas Rangers. The idea behind the promotion was to attract more fans to the game because the Indians were a constant loser. And they were in last place this year. Ken Aspermati was the manager. And they offered 12 ounces of 3.2 beer. Remember when you could get 3.2 beer? Well, that was back in the 1970s, and that's what they offered. 3.2 beer for just 10 cents a cup. 
and you could go back and get a limit of six. Well, the Indians had previously had five-cent beer night in 1971, and the whole thing went pretty smoothly. Well, three years later, the promotion was scheduled in the wake of the Texas Rangers' only 10-cent beer night just a couple of weeks before them, and when the fans had the beer in Texas, they started to toss things at the Indians. And in advance of the Cleveland episode, Billy Martin, who was the Rangers' manager at the time, noted that Cleveland didn't have enough fans to worry about the same thing happening to them. Well, sports radio talk show host Pete Franklin, if you remember him on old 3WE, which is now WTAM right now, spent an entire week on the radio whipping Cleveland fans into a frenzy over the Billy Martin insult. The night began, June 4th, with only one beer truck at the stadium to pour beer. Now, there was one girl pouring and one taking the money. And that is what started the melee outside when the girls became so overwhelmed with everyone coming to get beer, they walked off the job, leaving people to just grab the spigots and pouring their own drinks. They even had to bring in another beer truck. But obviously, more innings passed, more beer was flowing, the fans became heavily intoxicated, culminating in a riot in the ninth inning, which caused the game to be forfeited by the Indians due to the crowd's unsurmountable rowdiness and because the game could not be resumed in a timely manner. Nestor Shylock, the home plate umpire, was hit over the head with a chair. When that happened, he decided that was it. Enough was enough. One inebriated Indian fan lit the match when he came at Rangers outfielder Jeff Burroughs from the bleachers. I just wanted to get his hat, so I ran up behind Jeff Burroughs, and I had it in my hand, and then I dropped it. And so I went down to pick it up, and I looked up, and he looked at me, and I said, oh, hell. He kicked me right in the thigh, and he stumbled and fell down from the kick, and then the fans just really started pouring in. Now there's another group of morons running around in the outfield. Billy Martin said that he thought that Burroughs had been knocked down, and so he gets a bat and says, boys, let's go get him. Now it's a full-scale riot. There has to be 200 people and more coming on the field. Had it not been for the Indians players coming out to help us, it had been a real tragedy. Hargrove has got some kid on the ground, and he is really administering well, a beating. filling him up and hit him from behind is what happened. One of the Indians players, Tom Hilgendorf, got hit with a piece of a chair. Oh, this is absolute tragedy. I have never seen anything as disgusting as this. I haven't either. That was Joe Tate and Herb Score, the Indians announcers back in 1974. Of course, Joe Tate was the colossal Cleveland Cavaliers announcer for close to 40-some years. Mike Hargrove, you also heard him in that tape was a player for the Texas Rangers then. That was his rookie year with the Rangers. He was a first baseman. Of course, he later became a player and then manager for the Indians. And even the late Tim Russert, remember him? Died a few years ago, used to be of Meet the Press fame on NBC. He was at the game. And as Dan Coughlin, a former Plain Dealer writer and Channel 8 announcer in Cleveland, would say, Russert came to the game with two bucks, you do the math on how many he had. 
you would have thought that this would be the first and only time the Indians would have held this kind of promotion after the embarrassment and a forfeit. But you would be wrong. One month later, they held this thing again with more security and without any incident. Last night, the 40-year anniversary of Tencent Beer Night at Cleveland Municipal Stadium. Well, as we always do on the show on Ultimate Sports Talk, let's go into the Major League Baseball standings and tell you what's happening this week. And let's start in the National League this evening. And we'll start in the National League East, where the Atlanta Braves are leading the division by a half a game over the Miami Marlins. Believe it or not, Miami, three games above 500 and only a half a game behind Atlanta in the National League East. Then comes Washington, a game and a half back at 29 and 28. The New York Mets and Philadelphia Phillies round out the Eastern Division. In the National League Central, it is the Milwaukee Brewers leading by four games over the St. Louis Cardinals. The Brew Crew with a 35 and 25 mark. St. Louis 31 and 29. Then comes Pittsburgh. The Pirates have caught fire lately. They're 28 and 31, six and a half back. And after the loss this afternoon to the Giants, the Reds have dropped to 27 and 31, seven games behind the first place Brewers, and in fourth place in the Central, and the Cubs are in last place. And in the National League West, the team with the best record in baseball, the San Francisco Giants. They're 39-21. and 21. They lead by eight and a half games going into tonight's action over the Los Angeles Dodgers. Then comes Colorado 10 out, San Diego 12 out, and Arizona is in last place 14 and a half out. Who's the hottest team in the American League right now? Well, don't look, but it's the Cleveland Indians. They are in third place in the American League Central Division. Behind Detroit, Detroit 31-25, and but they've lost five in a row. The White Sox are 31-30. and They're two and a half games behind Detroit. Cleveland's off tonight, but they're at even 500 at 30-30. and But they've won six in a row. They have cut a ten-and-a-half game margin three weeks ago to Detroit, down to three games back now in the first week of June. Minnesota is in fourth place, three and a half games back, and Kansas City now mired in last place, four and a half games out at 28 and 31. In the Eastern Division of the American League, it's Toronto. Matter of fact, they've got the second best record in the American League behind the Oakland A's, but we'll get into that in just a moment. Toronto, 37 and 24. They've won five in a row. And they lead by five games over Baltimore at 30-27. and 27. They lead by six games over the Yankees. They lead by nine games over Boston. And they lead by 13 and a half games over Tampa Bay. And in the AL West, the team with the best record in the American League, it's the Oakland A's. And all you've got to do is go out to the Bay Area in California to find the two best teams in baseball, San Francisco and Oakland. Oakland leading the Western Division of the American League with a 37-23 and 23 mark. They are five games up on the Los Angeles Angels. They're five and a half games up on Seattle, seven and a half games on top of Texas and Houston. Playing good ball right now. They've won seven of their last ten, but they're still 25-35, and 35, mired in last place in the Western Division. But they do not have the worst record in baseball. No, they don't. That is a first 
for the Houston Astros in a long time this late in the baseball season. That's a look at the standings for tonight. Now we've got some sad news in Major League Baseball. Don Zimmer, a revered figure in his 66 years in Major League Baseball, died yesterday, less than two months after undergoing heart surgery. He was 83 years old. Zimmer's colorful personality and his deep love of the game prompted him to say he never worked a day in his life. And he was probably right. He had a 12-year Major League playing career, but rose to notoriety in more than 30 years as a coach, manager, and advisor, most recently with the Tampa Bay Rays. Zimmer was the senior advisor for the Rays and still suited up with the club during spring training. He had been hospitalized since having heart surgery on April 16th. His son, Tom, told the Tampa Bay Times that Zimmer went peacefully into the night. Zimmer once said he had the greatest life anyone could imagine. No kidding, because he was all baseball all the time. Tonight, we reflect back on the life of Don Zimmer. We tip our cap to the last of the boys of summer, one with a lifelong love of the game, so much so he married his high school sweetheart, Soot, upon the very place he held most dear, home plate, before earning his way to Ebbets Field in 1954. A shortstop for Dodger clubs graced by the iconic Jackie Robinson, he captured the first of six World Series rings in 55 and would play for five major league teams across a dozen seasons. Zim embarked on a coaching career in the bigs with Montreal, the first of nine major league uniforms he wore as a coach or manager, skippering his way into the Red Sox Hall of Fame and leading the Cubs to a division pennant as the National League Manager of the Year in 89. Zim was in the spotlight with Joe Torre in Yankee Stadium as a bench coach by Joe Side as the Bronx Bombers won four World Series. Yet through his travels to so many ballparks, Zim treasured the Bay Area as his true home. And as the Rays rose to the top of the American League, Don was ever-present and quite proud that his tenure with Tampa Bay marked his longest with any big league franchise. This spring marked Zim's final opening day. On that afternoon in the trunk, skipper Joe Madden and the Rays poured out their hearts. Do all the good you can in all the ways you can for as long as you ever can. Don Zimmer did, and that's a life to be cheered. Zimmer played with Jackie Robinson, went out to dinner with Babe Ruth, and proudfully boasted that he never took a paycheck from anyone other than a baseball team. He loved to hit and run and is one of the few managers to have a winning season with the Chicago Cubs. Zimmer is also one of the few to be loved in both Boston and New York. He won a championship with the Dodgers as a player, and as they, you heard in that eulogy, four World Series titles in a five-year span with Joe Torre and the New York Yankees. He was beloved by the Yankee players, most notably Derek Jeter during his stint as Joe Torre's aide. Zimmer often referred to Jeter as his favorite pupil. Joe Torre remembers his friend and former bench coach. I love the game of baseball. love being around young players. Just that way about them that uh, just made you feel good when you were, when you, when you were in his company. He, you know, he, he really opened my eyes to some you know, strategy. You know, we, 
we agreed on stuff where, you know, I wouldn't try his bases loaded hit and run, although he kiddingly uh, tried to get me to do that a couple of times. But it was all about baseball. It was all about his love for the game and, and the fact that uh, he just loved being in uniform. Tampa Bay was but a final stop on his baseball odyssey, where Zimmer bounced from franchise to franchise. He was serving as an advisor to the front office and Rays manager Joe Madden. And does Madden need an advisor? Yeah, Madden said he did. And last night, Madden spoke about the times that Don Zimmer would come into his office after a ball game. Really difficult evening. I found out about the third or the fourth inning. Um, attempted to address the boys. It's not easy. Um, yeah, we lost a good buddy tonight. I'm totally going to miss his advice. Um, he used to come in here a lot of times prior to the games, and he'd bring me that little bag of uh, Coney Island hot dogs, and uh, we'd sit here and talk about what was going on, and... Um, he sorely missed at this moment. When the team was struggling like this at all, it always sig him on a couple guys and always had some great advice. Uh, you know, from us to the entire family, so sorry, so sorry for your loss. He always had that look in his eye. He was always uh, de definitely engaged all the time in the moment. Uh, but it was always about winning. It was always about whatever it took to win. Um, his, his thing used to tell me all the time, if it sticks in your mind, just do it. Um, in other words, don't vacillate with your decisions. Uh, that's that's the advice that he gave me often. He was kind of a maverick when he managed back in the day, and he did a lot of. Uh, he used to, we we were we were been looking for that opportunity to start the runners with the bases loaded, one out. I guess he did that back in the day with the Cubs. So different thoughts like that he would always give me. We'd always go over different situations. Uh. You could not help but like. Don Zimmer. A stroke in 2008 slowed him significantly, but he still was a fixture with the club every spring. Cincinnati Reds announcer Tom Brenneman, doing a Fox game one Saturday night, once said Don Zimmer was the face of baseball. Well, that face is now gone, and baseball is the loser because of it. Don Zimmer is gone at the age of 83. Well, Colin Kaepernick is a very happy fella today. The San Francisco 49ers decided it wasn't worth waiting any longer to lock up their franchise quarterback for a long haul, so they took care of it in three days. They started negotiations on Sunday night, and they signed Kaepernick to a contract yesterday. The Niners signed Colin Kaepernick to a six-year contract extension through the 2020 season that makes him one of the NFL's highest-paid players. NFL Network reported the deal is worth up to $126 million with $61 million in guarantees if he does achieve some incentive bonuses. Now, if he does achieve that, it would surpass Drew Brees' $60.5 million guaranteed deal that he signed in 2012 with the New Orleans Saints, and that would be the most guaranteed money in NFL history. Peter Schrager of CBS Sports is in San Francisco, and he reports on this new deal. I mean, the response is very interesting. So it is a lot of 49ers fans and NFL fans in general are scratching their heads, but 
Ask a Jets fan, ask a Raiders fan, ask a Titans fan if they would pay him this money. They would tell you yes. And I'm picturing Colin Kaepernick right now in that commercial. I'm the man, I'm the man. Yeah, he's the man right now. 61 guaranteed million dollars and 110 over that. And the thing with Kaepernick, which is so interesting, every year now we have these new quarterback extensions, whether it's Matt Ryan, Joe Flacco, and everyone says they're getting overpaid. Well, guess what? That is the standard. If you have a franchise quarterback now, regardless of how they rank on your list, you have to pay them. This is the newest list, and this is the newest guy to get his money. And Colin Kaepernick, I think he earned it, despite the fact the 49ers last year ranked 32nd, last in the league, in pass attempts. And we are going to see just what this is going to do to Russell Wilson, who has won a Super Bowl in his first two years in the same division as Kaepernick with the Seattle Seahawks. Now, the structure of this deal will be telling. The 49ers were less than $1.5 million under the salary cap as of Wednesday afternoon, according to the NFL Players Association. Kaepernick was due just under a $1 million in base salary, plus a $100,000 workout bonus in the last year of his rookie deal. He said his extension was designed to give the team flexibility to sign other star players in the future. And want to give credit to Patrick Doherty of Roto World. Did you see his article on the top NFL owners? It's pretty easy to tell you who the top five are. Robert Kraft, number one for the Patriots. Then comes Jeffrey Lurie of the Eagles at number two. Pat Bowen is number three. He owns the Broncos. Number four is the Rooney family, who owns the Pittsburgh Steelers. And John Mara and Steve Tisch own the New York Giants, and they come in at number five. Who are the worst two owners in the NFL? Number 31, Jimmy Haslam of the Cleveland Browns. And number 32, Daniel Snyder of the Washington Redskins. And that's going to do it for tonight's show. But before we go, let me give you a recap of what's happened in the Major League Baseball draft for tonight. As we told you earlier, the number one pick went to the Houston Astros. That's Brady Aiken, a left-handed pitcher. Tyler Kolick was the number two pick of the Miami Marlins. Carlos Radon of North Carolina State, another left-handed pitcher, went to the Chicago White Sox at number three. From Ohio, Kyle Schwarber from Middletown, Ohio. He plays college baseball for Indiana. He was drafted by the Chicago Cubs at number four. He's a catcher. At number five, Nick Gordon, who is the son of Tom Gordon, the former pitcher for the Kansas City Royals. He was drafted number five by the Minnesota Twins. Number six was Alex Jackson. You heard his recap of his uh, scouting report. He was taken at number six by the Seattle Mariners. And Aaron Nola, a right-handed pitcher, was selected number seven by the Philadelphia Phillies. And like I said, that's going to do it for tonight's show. You can catch up with the rest of the Major League Draft on the Major League Baseball Network. Don't forget the NBA Finals are coming up here in about an hour in San Antonio where the Spurs will be taking on the Miami Heat in Game 1 of the NBA Championship Series. Our thanks to Greg Mitchell, our producer, for tonight's show, but also our thanks to you for listening. Don't forget, on Monday night, Mark Donahue and I will be back with another Ohio Baseball Weekly show. That will be at 9 o'clock here at UltimateSportsTalk.com, where we'll talk about the Cleveland Indians and the Cincinnati Reds, teams that are going in entirely different directions right now. And we'll be back next Thursday night with another Ultimate Sports Talk show at 
7 o'clock, and we'll continue on talking about the NHL playoffs and the NBA playoffs then, and hopefully a Triple Crown winner out of California Chrome. Of course, as always, that music tells us that it's time to go. Again, listening tonight on the show. We'll be back next Thursday night. Until next year tonight. I'm Dave Mitchell. Have a good weekend. Have a good week, everybody. Until next Thursday night. Good night.